Today's podcast is brought to you by Progresso Talent Partners, who for more than 25 years have successfully delivered interim and permanent leadership talent to transform businesses. To hire the talent you need to enable your business to thrive, visit www.progressotalent.com today. Let's get into it. In 2018, 5 million people went to a music festival in the UK. With a value of 2.6 billion, festivals are a major contributor to the UK economy. In 2018 alone, 7.5% of the UK population went to a festival. But go back to 2008. Nobody had thought of combining sport and music to put on a festival. Until that was, Roger Woodall had a conversation on the beach and Bournemouth Sevens was born. Despite having no festival experience, Roger hosted 96 teams and 4,000 people to that very first festival. And 12 years on, the Sporting Glastonbury has grown to become the largest sports and music festival in the world. Today on the Astrology Podcast, we dig into the extraordinary story behind Mr. Bournemouth Sevens, from rugby player to nightclub entrepreneur, to a festival that now attracts 30,000 people and 400 teams from all across the world. Ladies and gentlemen, Roger Woodall. If we look at the fabric of, uh, or just how festivals are, are wound into the fabric of the entertainment industry in the UK, I'd read that in 2018 alone, 5 million people in the UK had attended a music festival, 7.5% of the population. It's a 2.6 billion industry in the UK. Uh, I think last count that I'd seen, I think that's a 2019 number. So it's, it's, it's a huge part of society here. Globally, it's a huge part of, of, of how we entertain ourselves. But if I go back to 2008, whilst clearly festivals were an integral part of the landscape and have been around for a long time, certainly as I understood it, combining music and sport in a festival concept was, was unheard of. I, I don't know that ever I'd heard of it. So really, I'm interested if, I, if we can start by going back to 2008 and the, the concept of the Bournemouth Sevens. Where where the original idea had uh, had stemmed yeah, from? Yeah, sure thing. I uh, I moved down from London in two thousand and five, and the idea came about in two thousand and seven. Thinking there's you know there's many many music festivals that everyone knows, and the big ones we all know, obviously your Glastonbury's and your Leeds and your V festivals, etc., and your Reading festivals, and um, and really the idea came about was there was nothing in the UK which was a sport and music festival. There was many uh, sevens festivals around the world, and I thought, well, mix this, mix let's have a look at mixing my sort of events background of throwing lots of parties, uh, mixed with my well connect with a lot of connections in the rugby world, and I thought about creating a sport music festival, and that's where it came about, really. And w- was there a sort of eureka moment? Was there that moment where you could specifically? I knew where I was when I had that kind of flash of inspiration. Yeah, I was on the beach with the mate having a beer. <laughs> yes. Wow. How, how many, how many great ideas oh, come about as a fabulous. consequence of that? It was. It was literally on the beach, down in down in uh, down in Bournemouth Beach, having a beer with the power, and the idea sort of come back around from there. But I would never have guessed I'd be where I am today after an idea, after an idea back then. You know. So it's um, it's been one hell of a journey. Jeez. So where where do you go from there? Because I know, I know even from my own experience. I mean, we, my life is littered with you know great ideas over a pint I mean, I, and I think that's probably true if we yeah. talk to a lot of a lot of people that but that that leap from 
that great idea over a pint to actually see it come to fruition. Yeah. Uh, what was the journey from from the, the beer on the beach to all of a sudden you've got 4,000 people, I think, at your, at your first yeah. festival? What was the yeah. journey from there? Well, that's a very good question, in fact, because I think 99.9% .9 of people come up with wonderful ideas, but only 0.1% actually follow through. Yeah. Um, I've actually followed through on all the ideas over the years of my sort of 20, 30 years of doing businesses and uh, starting from a young kid selling football stickers in the playground right. to to where I am, where, where, where I've managed to get to today. Um, the idea really was homework. Um, and I'm not a person who likes to, you know, I was never an academic at school. It was all about sport and really thinking about how I can earn money from a young age. Um, and it kind of made me realize, right, get on the internet. Let's get on the internet. Let's find out what is out there. So there's no one who can beat me in doing hard work, putting the hard work in and graft. I'll outgraft anyone. And the actual mindset back then was, I need to know everything what's going on worldwide. You know, and I was studying, I was studying American football. I was going across all the American football websites because back then, 2008, websites weren't really that cool. No. You know, I first started, set up my first website in 2000 when I was in the, when I had the uh, student nights all around the UK. And they were, you look back now, it's like they were great at the time, but you look back now and they were terrible. Um, and even in 2008, there wasn't brilliant websites around. So I thought, I've got to get myself to America and see if I can replicate some of these American football sites. And I was like, oh my God, if I can bring this idea back with the website feel in the UK market, mixing sport and music, mixing rugby sevens, and adding netball to bring the girls in and having a massive party in a field with like-minded people drinking beer, listening to music that we all know and like for sing-along, having great food and just creating a wonderful atmosphere. I think we could be onto something, but I didn't have a clue. So back then, not having a clue was I had no one to, uh, I had no mentor, I had no one to replicate. All there was in the UK was music festivals and Music festivals, as we all know, is the headline acts are anywhere from £300,000 up to a million pounds. You know, I didn't have the money for that whatsoever. So it was thinking, right, how can I attract people? And the way we attracted people was it's all about like-minded people having a party, having fun in a really safe environment. And that's kind of where it stemmed from. Um, and back in 2008, we launched in the middle of a recession. Yeah which was a massive kick in the plums, if I was to say so myself. <laughs> um, but it also was a huge asset as well. In what sense? In the way that I was back then, it was like, who's this guy trying to do a sport and music festival? W what is this? Is he crazy? Is he mad? That was before the recession came ahead. Then the recession hit us in, in, in 2008 when we were about to launch in, in May. And it made all these big conglomerates, all these big sporting companies, all these big festivals, it dropped everyone down to a bit of a level playing field. Right. So it made, there's a lot of redundancies going on. We were a nobody working out the garage at home. Um, it just created a very, more of a level playing field, which, which I identified as huge opportunity. Now launching that inner recession was a lovely feeling knowing that it, the, the, what I guess what really happened was it made people not travel abroad anymore. Right. Because of the Euro. Um, 
and it kept people in the UK and our festival was at the start, the first festival of the of the year, at the end of May. Yep. So it made all these touring teams, whether it was rugby, uh, netball, et cetera, they weren't going abroad anymore. So that was a huge bonus for us. Um, so yeah, that's what that's how it all stemmed really. And, you know, it was a, a huge gamble. And if you said to me today, would you go through that again? And would you put your wife and your family through that again? I'll say, no, stay away from it. Right. But I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't have a clue what I was doing. Do you think it was an advantage, almost that sense of you don't know what you don't know? 100%. Was it, was it an advantage? My God, like, like now, because I know what I know and I know what I put myself and my wife through for four or five years of serious financial pressure and serious sleepless nights and serious stress and serious everything because we didn't have team staff. It was it was my, myself and, and my wife. And at that time we were, she was at JP Morgan on a really nice salary. And I said, I need help. You've got to stop that, that salary and please come on board to and, and back me on this idea, and she did. And, and there was many sleepless nights and a lot of teary nights from her, you know, over over the, over those years, thinking, "What are we doing?" But yeah, it was it was crazy, crazy time. Two thousand eight, nine, ten, eleven were crazy times. And any business you set up, any business takes time to take the back. It takes time to break the back of it. Yeah, I think I'm right. I think it's something like four out of five don't make it past their fifth year or yeah. third year. Well, like There's not many. I think it's like five no. percent of business make it past ten years. Yeah. You know, they, they, I think it was eighty-five percent of business fail after three or four years. So you, you get you get to learn all this, but it's only because of the internet we're all learning all this now. Yeah. You know, back then it wasn't you wouldn't really you know because so, there wasn't any social media back then to to go and find out this information or what have you. You know, and going back to that point, two thousand eight, there was no you know we found social media. I had ten years of using flyers and posters and building teams in different cities all around the UK for for the for the nightclub nights we had, and all of a sudden an absolute godsend looked down down on us and um, brought Facebook to the world. I could then, I was on Facebook 24 hours a day when I found this because as a promoter and event organiser, this is perfect. I could, Would you say, was that the catalyst? Was that, do you think that if you go back to that first festival, was that the catalyst that enabled you to, to really accelerate? It, it gave me a huge tool to be able to promote an event. Yeah. A huge tool. And when Facebook came out in 2008, we, I was like, oh, my God, someone just landed this on a plate. This is unbelievable. So you're telling me that I can sit on a chair, press a few buttons, invite people to groups. And back then I was getting banned from groups every other week from Facebook. I was setting up groups because I couldn't believe that you could generate this amount of people coming into groups. So I had 10 groups at a time. I was using Roger Woodall at Facebook. Then I was using different names, George Woodall, David, whatever it, whatever it was to get people into one group to be able to market to them, tell them about this new concept. So yeah, there was many times I was banned from Facebook. So if you go back to getting the the the, the idea off the ground, that sort of seed capital, if you like. Yeah. I mean, I, I would imagine never run a festival, but my sense would be that, uh, and particularly if you're starting afresh, where you've got respectfully no real traction, no track record, yeah. that there's an awful lot of people, security, police, oh. uh, suppliers, food, drink, you know, bands, whatever it might be, DJs. They're all wanting something up front from you. You just, nailed it, on, you just nailed it on the head. How, how, where do you, you know, tell, that was a learning checks. curve. In, yeah. That was a learning curve in itself. Jesus. Yeah, that was, that was when you've been throwing parties in nightclubs for 10 years and at peak, I had 12 nightclubs all around the UK from Manchester to Brighton to London. This was you had, uh, Bubble Love and yeah, we had Poppy Cherry. And, Poppy Cherry yeah. and um, Fill Your Boots. Yeah. You know, this was all when I finished uni, my final year of uni, did that for 10 years. Cause again, there was no one in the market doing it. So yeah. we saw an opportunity to go and 
be the pioneers of that. And that worked wonderfully well. Um, but the next step for me was to do a festival. And most festival owners these days have been in the nightclub world and been promoters. And the next step is to do a festival. Um, but going back to your point, very good point, in fact, because I've never really spoken about this. Um, it was a really weird feeling because when you go to a nightclub, you bring in my night, the nightclubs we'd have would never touch anything less than a thousand capacity. So back then in 99 and 2001, 2002, up to 2008, they were the big monster clubs around the UK. And yeah. as a promoter, you wanted the, you wanted these massive clubs because the more people you could put in there, the more money you could charge, you know, more people would come through the doors and the more money you would earn at the end of the night. It was a real simple equation. And in 2008, moving, moving knew how, I knew how to put on great parties, but moving people into a field, and like you say, you've got all these bills to pay. You know, the tent company weren't paying. Yeah. The police weren't paying. The licensing, the toilets, the showers, the fencing, the electricity, the, all this stuff I didn't have a clue about. So I went in two feet in, not having a clue about any of this. I knew I was going to have to pay one day, but I didn't realize that they weren't paying up front 100% because I got no track record. And we're going into a recession. So they were scared as well. Yeah. As much as me being uh, an event organizer, promoter, marketing person, etc., was let's just put the event on and let's get cracking. And all of a sudden you'll get a, a, a letter through saying, I want £40,000 for the tent company. You're like, Jesus. Oh, I didn't see that one coming. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you're the toilet company and the shower company want fifteen grand each. And then the security one. 28 grand up front and this is 12 years ago so I was writing checks out for fun I didn't have the money you know so it was a blessing for being naive I think um, it was in my mind the naivety was thinking oh this was going to cost me £100,000 to put on six months prior to the first festival I needed money because I've run out of money and it was like shit what am I going to do no banks were loaning Sponsors weren't really coming on board because they're all in deep global recession. Yeah. Um, it was like, where do I look to? There was nowhere, there was nowhere to look to. And I was in, I was in for a hundred grand. So I didn't want to then pull out because I'd have lost a hundred grand straight away. It's like, I have to go for this. I really believed I had something. We had something. Me and my wife had something. And it was really risky times, but I like risk. I've always liked risk. I like calculated risk. Um, there wasn't much calculated in this because it was all the unknown because people back then couldn't buy tickets online. Yeah. People, it was being introduced. So people were scared to put their credit card in line, online, uh, put the details in and go, oh, I'll buy seven tickets at 20, 30 pounds ahead, 40 pounds, whatever it may be back then. No one did that. So you're building up this festival six months ago, run out of money, the only way we could turn to was going to the mortgage company and remortgaging our house, which was not the cleverest of ideas back then, which caused huge amount of stress because if yeah. no one turned up in year one in the festival, you've lost your house. It was simple as that. There's no hairs and graces about this. There was no, I'm not coating over anything here. It was literally simple. You are going to lose your house if you do not make this work to repay the loan you took on your mortgage. So it was, it was really, really scary times but i never showed that to my wife my wife was in pieces in bed probably four nights a week i'd say crying 
walking down the beach going, what have we done? What have we done? What have we done? And I was always the, don't worry, we'll make this work. We're just the positive person I am. And, you know, and thank God it all paid off, I have to say. How, how did you feel? If you go, if you can reflect back on that, the, the, the first day of the festival, yeah. because I'd imagine that, you know, there are, there are, there are factors outside of your control. You could, you could have done everything. Yes. To, you know, every detail is covered. Yep. Every base is covered. You wake up on that first, first morning, yeah. festival day to day, it's pouring with rain. Yeah. Now, as I remember it, I think if I remember rightly, it was a good week. It was a it good was weekend. A gorgeous weather. It was a corker, um, thank God. But, but, you know, there were so many things outside yeah. of your control. So can you remember how you felt when 100%. Kind of the alarm went off that that's morning? Not, you think, right, today's the day. That's never going to leave me. Yeah. That feeling there, that's a very good question again. Um, that feeling is never going to leave me. The feeling of you've done as much as you can, you've promoted as much as you can. And remember back then I was still fly posting and flyering everyone that moved, everyone that moved because Facebook come on the scene, but it's only just come on the scene. So it was very fresh and new. It wasn't like the powerhouse it is today. So back then it was literally outside Twickenham stadium. I'll drive up with eight girls or wearing super women's outfits like hot pants and tight tops, handing out flies to 80 or 1,000 people outside Twickenham, being chased by security to get off their land. Da, 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 da. We didn't care. This was like backs to the walls. We have to make this work. Yeah. Um, that feeling of doing as much as we can of, of buying half a million flyers and half a million flyers trying to get to hand in all the local cities to us. And anyone who likes music and sport and what have you, we just did everything. You know, you had to be a nuisance to spread the word back then. Um, but that feeling of the month of May leading up to the first festival, my emotions have never been so high and low in, in one month. Because the only thing you can't control when putting on a festival is the weather. Everything else you can pretty much control and have in place and you know you've done as much as you possibly can. And the only thing we couldn't control is the weather, as you know. But if the weather was poor, no one would turn up, apart from the teams that have already booked in to compete. But you can't make a business model just out of teams competing on the weekend. Yeah. You have to make a business model of creating all the people who want to come to the party, all the people who want to turn up at three, four in the afternoon, two in the afternoon, and want to have a nice all-day session, listen to good music, have a laugh, have a dance, all wear fancy dress. That was the business model we had to make it work. So the first part of the business model was the sport. And that was the key part of creating a sport music festival. And the beauty of that is we're expecting 24 teams. We ended up with 96 teams in year one, which was blew us away. So I knew I was onto something then. The next bit was about getting those party people to come in and buy into the weekend. Those party people didn't buy tickets because... They didn't know what they were coming to. The yep. Sports people knew what they were coming to. Yeah. So essentially, in that whole of month of May, going back to your question, I've diverted a little bit there. Going back to your question, in the month of May, I would look at the weather forecast from the first of May to the twenty eighth of May, and no one knows what weather forecast. They don't even know what's going to be tomorrow, let alone twenty eight days. So my emotion was, oh my god, the oh the forecast in twenty eight days that it's going to be sunny dancing around the dancing around the bedroom and having to go, yes, this is going to be fantastic. Next morning, it's going to be rainy. Next morning, it's going to be sunny. Next morning, it's going to be thunderstorm. And it went up and down, up and down, up and down. So they were, that, that wasn't good for the, that wasn't good for the, uh, the mindset. But again, staying positive. So anyway, going back to the question again was wake up on the Friday morning, open the curtains, look outside and see it's beautiful sunshine. 
teams arriving, sunshine, the doors of the festival opening. So as I arrived, um, obviously we set up the whole festival. It takes two weeks to build the whole site, probably a bit less back then because it's turned into a, a huge festival now. But as you open the doors and you saw all the queues building, you're like, oh my God, we are onto something. People are coming now with money in their hand to pay to come into the festival. So that eased the pressure. But again, it was all the unknown. How many people are going to pay? How many people are going to turn up? How many pints are they going to drink? All of this was the unknown. There was no business model for me to follow. So, yeah, that feeling was amazing. Absolutely amazing. And it was sunshine all weekend. But but if it was raining all weekend, I probably wouldn't be sitting here today. Yeah. Yeah, there is an element, I think, with a lot of these things. You, you, I, I would argue you make your own luck. But there's yes. an element of serendipity. You work hard enough. You set up everything. I'd like to right think way. so. Yeah. You know, I, I, I've got that mindset. The sun was shining on you that day. Yeah, for sure. it was. Yeah. And and you know what? Over the 13 years, it's it's been shining. The sun's been out 10 of 11, 10 of the years. We've been extremely lucky with the weather. Yeah. How, how did you lucky. feel at the end of that first week, first festival, yep. at the end of the weekend, other than utterly exhausting, I'd imagine? Mentally, how, can you remember again how you felt? Physically when- drained, literally zapped, because you're walking, you know, you're you're making sure that the. Back then, I think there was 50, 60 security. You're making sure that security are on, are on the ball. You're making sure that all the bar stuff you're bringing are on the ball, making sure that the tournament's working. You're making sure that the, just making sure that everything's working because, you know, being a, being a perfectionist, you want to make sure for, for me, it was making sure that everyone left there with a great taste in their mouth so they wanted to come back for more next year. And yeah. that's what we achieved. But what I realized was, was you think you've got the year one out of the way. You're like, oh, fantastic. You're like, Oh my God, we're going straight into year two now. Right. Literally, was, literally, was almost the lights are off and then off you go you again. Straight away. Because it took a week to sort out all the finances. You have to find out where we stood. And in year one, we made £1,000 profit, which we were extremely happy with. So, as I understood it, it's, it takes on average a festival seven years it, to break yes. even. Yeah, 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 yeah. Goodness me. Yeah. So, first year. Albeit respectfully negligible, but nonetheless, a, a profit thousand is, pound. I was over you must the have been moon. overjoyed. I was that. buzzing. Yeah, I was absolutely buzzing because, again, going back, it was Melvin Ben who 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 owns um, Festival Republic. Um, he's part of Live Nation. He's probably one of the biggest promoters in the world. And his words were to me: "It takes seven years to break the back of a music festival to right. break even, and you've done it in year one." And that's when I really dawned upon me to think we're really onto something here. But the day after the festival year one, you know, we had to remortgage the house. So we were all in. I thought I was going to be in for £100,000, end up costing £300,000. Right. So to make a grand was amazing. But the naivety again was, oh, I can take a bit of time out now. You can't. You're straight back into it again. And then you've got to get that money that you've already borrowed to use it again for next year because you've got a list of 20 improvements you want to make to make the festival better for year two. It's going to be one of my questions. What, do you, what did you learn from that first time around? Oh, my God, I learned a hell of a lot. A hell of a lot. But I also knew that I need to reinvest. I need to reinvest in the business. I need to reinvest into the areas which I could improve on and which we identified that needed work. I wanted to create more party tents. I wanted to create a better entrance. We wanted better showers, better toilets better fencing, more security, you know, and, and and that all adds up, you know, so that all added up for year two going into £500,000. And then again, you're thinking, well, I've got to get more people in to cover that half a million pounds to see if we made a profit again. So it was like this ongoing chasing 
chasing to get more people to just break even and can we make a profit? You know, so that was ongoing to do that. And again, we smashed it in year two to make a profit again. With the benefit of hindsight, what would you have done differently in no, year one? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. There's nothing more I could have given. There's nothing more I could have given, hand on heart. And there's not more risk you could take than putting your house on the line. No. And I would recommend nobody listening to this. I'd recommend nobody do that. That's interesting. Yeah. 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 Because and the, it's the emotion. And the stress. And it's the, the, it's the stress. And I never, I never like to use the word stress. I've always used it as pressure because stress links to heart disease and da, da, da. But for me, I always linked it to pressure. But actually, let's get real. It is stress. Mm. They are those tight chested moments. They are you laying in bed at, going to bed at one because you can't sleep and then waking up at three thinking of a million things on your, on your plate because there was no one to fall back on. It wasn't if I had a team of five, six, seven people, I could say, guys, can you help out? There was none of that. But I think if it would be amiss of me not to at least this point ask you about Fleur, your wife, yeah. um, because I think if there's one thing that I'd learned is that if I look at through times through which I've succeeded in business, it's tended to be where there's been a partnership involved in yes. some way, shape or form. Yeah. And, and uh, times where I've failed is where I've tried to do it all on my own. Yeah. Um, I would, you know, I'd be, I would imagine having, uh, you know, the role she played through all of that, 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 um, that, uh, launch of the first festival, yeah. uh, says a lot of the strength of, of your relationship, but also her character that you were able to get through that time, uh, and come out the other side. Of it. Unbelievable. Literally unbelievable. I wouldn't be where I'm sitting now without her. I genuinely, genuinely mean it. This is not just a... Oh yeah, my wife's great. Today, yeah. like well, I'm here on these stories and podcasts. This is genuine. That I would not be, we would not be where we are today without the support of her being the rock. Yeah, I was the one out there marketing, promoting it, and selling it. She was the one behind the scenes dealing with all the crap. You know, dealing with all the letters coming in and the and the, and the formalities and all the stuff that wasn't my bag, and it wasn't her bag either. You know, she had a really nice decent job at JP Morgan for 10 years. <laughs> you know what I mean? She's going from a real comfy job, albeit JP Morgan and, and the positives and negatives that go with being a, a number in a, in a large conglomerate company to working with a promoter, <laughs> events organizer into a business that she's put her own house on the line yep. with. So, and she doesn't like risk. So this was a huge, huge, it was a huge wake-up call, shock, I would say, a major shock, I think. And the problem is once you're into something, you can't pull out. No. Because you might as well just watch that money go away. So we were in and we had to be in it. But, yeah, what a rock, what a support, what a woman. Yeah. And you know what no one knows about Fleur? She doesn't want to be seen. She doesn't want to be heard. She just behind the scenes now. She's the finance director of our group. She protects everything. She protects the money. She pays everyone. She pays everything that goes out. And she's, she's, she's an unbelievable, unbelievable woman. Fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. Mm. So you project forward to, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll come on to 2020 in, uh, in due course, because obviously oh, we, we're, going through the plums. <laughs> we're going through unprecedented times, but you've, you've got I hate to... that word, unprecedented. <laughs> like so it's been everywhere. overused. Over, it's been yeah, overused. Yeah, but the, um, but I think if we, if, you know, so you've now got the world's biggest, uh, sports and music festival yeah. um 
I, I'd read that um, 30,000 people a year, mm. 400 teams, yes. um, a social media reach of 3.2 million across mm. all platforms. Mm. I mean, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a phenomenal success story, but clearly one that continues to be, uh, to require a lot of blood, sweat and tears from yeah. a, a, you know, your team and yourselves yeah. and wife. Um, what have been the, what have been the highlights from your perspective? If you look back, what have you really enjoyed about the experience? Wow. Really good question. I think the main thing what I enjoy in business is disrupting the market. I love to disrupt the market. I love to see opportunities. I love to see opportunities and think what I could do better. Well, any, anything in business, you, you look at a business and all businesses are created by seeing an opportunity and saying, I think I can do that better. I like seeing opportunities that maybe no one's doing and do it the best that no one can overtake you. So I never sit on my hands and think, oh, yeah, we've been going 13 years. This is fantastic. Let's take my foot off the pedal. And actually, the highlights are creating something that has become worldwide, um, has worldwide recognition in the, in the rugby playing countries of Australia and New Zealand, Japan, Dubai, Hong Kong. And then obviously the four we got here in the UK and, and your playing countries in France, etc. So it's... It's the festival and the rugby and the sports festival that everyone wants to be at. Um, so that's a real big highlight. It's also very nice. You get. From, it's also nice when people recognise what you've done. That's another nice highlight. Um, and another nice highlight is to have co-workers and who are my right-hand men and women who are brilliant at what they do. Mm. Absolutely brilliant. And for them to be happy every day coming into work, knowing they're working on a festival and enjoying what they do, and also me giving them the freedom to be entrepreneurs within the company. You know, we're a small company. There's a team of seven of us, nine of us in total, seven full-time staff, myself and my wife. And giving them the freedom to be entrepreneurs, let them understand what it's like to, to, to run a, a company. You're not just a number. You're, you'll play a huge part. That's a, I, I, I love that feeling. Mm. What, what do you look for when you're picking those oh, God. members of your yeah. team? What, what do you look for? I don't look for CVs. I don't look for, I don't buy into this CV. I don't buy into this university, university degree. I don't buy into this A-level and GCSE, what people have got. Not at all. You know, I have 10 CVs on my desk each week. I want someone to stand out. I look for emotional intelligence. It's all about emotional intelligence. Knock on my door, ask questions. Let's get you in. Get in front of my face. Get in, get in contact with me on LinkedIn. Reach out. Let me see that entrepreneurial spirit in you. You know, I reply to everyone on LinkedIn. Mm. And the personality I look for is hardworking. Are you hungry? Do you ask lots of questions? Are you bang on the ball? Are you sharp? Are you willing to learn? Okay, you don't know everything now, but we're going to give you the skill set to become the best you possibly can be. So you can be the best in the industry at what you do. And our tight team of seven, are they are the best at what they do in the industry. They're up there. They're up there with the big players. And we're all down here in Bournemouth. There's not a better place to live in the UK, in my opinion, than living down here on seven miles of sandy golden beaches and the outdoor lifestyle we've all got with surfing and kite surfing and all the stuff we do down here and you know we're we we put on a festival which is 10 minutes away from us mm. you know it's on our doorstep we're extremely extremely proud I'm, I'm really proud of where we live in the country really proud of Bournemouth you know I can't speak highly enough for this place and to have a business here as well and that we all gear up to for once a year um, it's an absolute delight for most so how did you, I'm interested in, in your backstory. You mentioned that you, you arrived in 2005, I think yes. you mentioned, but yeah. did you grow up here or what's the, where, where did it, when, and no. I'm interested to then perhaps explore some of where this entrepreneurial instinct, you mentioned 
selling yeah. panini stickers at uh, yeah, on the school yeah, playgrounds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but you, where, where did you grow up? What's the what's yeah, the background? I grew up in London. Um, I lived I lived above pubs. My dad, mum, and dad were publicans. Right. So I lived above a, in a flat above pubs in different parts of in different parts of London, which was a a very exciting upbringing, uh, a very different upbringing. You know, I was around adults the whole time, seeing things maybe you shouldn't be seeing at a young age, but I wouldn't change that for the world. Mm. Um, you you grow up very quickly. Um, you learn how to you learn how to create businesses. You know, I I did all my learning when I was six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. In what sense did it? Because it's it's a real. It's, I've always thought about pubs. I remember when I was a kid, I thought the idea of owning a pub appealed to me. Mm. But I very and I I did like we all did. You know, I started washing pots in a pub kitchen yeah. when I was in my early teens, and then before you know it, you're pulling pints behind a bar when you <laughs> when you were eighteen. Um, and I always used to look at the people that that owned those pubs or ran those pubs, yeah. and just think it's it's bloody hard work. Actually, it's Absolutely. a it's a lifestyle choice because okay, you're seeing arguably the best of, of people when they're having a good time. You're also seeing some of the worst Absolutely. of people. But you're when you could be out on a you know Friday night at 10 o'clock having a pint and enjoy yourself with your pals, yeah. you're actually serving those on the other side of the bar. Yeah. It's a lifestyle choice. Yeah. It's, it's hard work. Yeah. Um, but what do you what do you think you learned from from that experience? I've, oh, I, learned, I can look back and say it's made me who I am today, 100%. Mm. Some um, great characters as well. Oh, characters. They, uh, characters. There's characters everywhere. And being the publican's son in real cool pub or nice pubs, well, not really, I wouldn't say they're nice pubs, but the, the places to be, Yeah, you know, you were the son of the landlord and the landladies. You were, you were, there, was a, there was mutual respect there straight away, you know, and when when you're, when you're there running around the pub in your, in your West Ham kit, your full West Ham kit, the age of six, seven, eight, nine, ten, going up and whatever you, but, you know, I, I learned how to build relationships with people. I learned how to create businesses back then, if you think about it. Mm. You know, I was buying and selling. I was buying and selling. I was, you know, we had a nightclub next door to us and I was going to the head doorman and going to the manager and buying tickets off them for a pound and selling them to everyone in our pub next door for two pound. Brilliant. You know, so at the age of eight and 10 and, you know, selling them a two pound ticket, but they knew they could go and get Q jump. So it was a win-win. So I learned how to create businesses on win-win at a very young age. And that's what we like to do and have done over the years. And, and where, do you, where do you think was that? There's that whole sort of nature nurture debate. Was that an intuitive, instinctive sense of just who you were? It was just in your DNA somewhere, or was it your? You know, was there a? Was it your dad that said suddenly, or your mum said, "Might want to try and make this." You might make yeah, a few well, my mum's my mum's a, a big entrepreneur, right? You know, she's she's she come from nothing from Manchester with seven seven kids living in a tiny little house and what have you and. And she moved down to London in the seventies and worked in the casinos and met my dad in the casinos. My dad's a East Londoner, uh, boy done good. And they both met in the casinos in the eighties and the Playboy Casino it was called back then. Dad was a croupier, mum was a, a bunny girl. Um, and you know, they then moved into setting up and um, becoming manager, manageress of, of, of pubs. And um, yeah, you, you learn a lot from them. They're two really good people, massively respect. I'm very close with, and they both got huge, wonderful qualities. And and the main thing is, yeah, I guess they, they, they've taught me a hell of a lot. And, you know, they gave me a wonderful start in life. Growing up in pubs, I wouldn't say it was the best start in life, I would guess, you know. There's lots of positives. There's obviously lots of negatives and that go with it. I wouldn't change it for the world because it's made me who I am today. But they gave me a wonderful start and, you know, and they were, I was lucky enough. They didn't want me in the pubs and around the pubs and... 
and around that whole clientele, which I was all the time, but they were lucky enough that, that they earned the cash that put me into into do into a private sports school. You know, from 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 the age of eight, which was massive for me because my whole life had been sport. I was going to ask at what point sport started to become. Yeah, well, my dad's a huge sportsman. Right. he's a massive trainer. He's uh, he, he's been sportful through his life, everything, and you know, he's sixty seven now, and he's number one in the UK, and he's sponsored by Maxim Muscle, paid paid Maxim Muscle um, athlete on adverts and does he, he's a phenomenal human being and a sportsman through and through. Does he so. do lift weights? Is he t- no crossfitter? Crossfit. He wow. does crossfit, which is another level of another yeah, level of fitness. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and he, he, he's a professional a- athlete and, you know, 67, he trains seven days a week and competes against 30 year olds all around the country. And he's another level as a human being. And hey, a was, it you, was it your mum and dad that got you into sport? In the yeah, first my place? dad, my dad's right. a sportsman. You know, and uh, he got me into sport from a very young age. Everything, rugby, football, cricket, yeah. squash, you know, all those sort of 80s sports that you grow up with at school and and and, and it sort of grew on from there, really. And then, um, yeah, and, and I guess from the age of eight when you're, you know, in the playground selling Panini football stickers and, you know, you knew that one lad needed the, I don't know, the Liverpool striker and I've got that one and he wants to buy it for X amount. I said, well, hold on, I'll swap it for that and you can pay me a bit of extra money and not, you know, you want it for... 10p, you can have for 20p if you want. And you get to learn little tricks and trade, you know, from a young age. Mm. You know, so I guess it all started from then. And then you, you started playing rugby. You got into your rugby. Obviously, you a successful rugby career. Wasps Academy, Leicester Tigers. Yeah. Um, but at what point did you think, right, rugby's my game? Was there a point at which you thought you played all sorts of football sports? Football was my game. Was it? Yeah. I what, did you play, what position did you play? Centre midfield. Yeah. So I loved football. You know, we were a massive football family. We're a massive West Ham all our family. So Bro- Trevor Brooking would have been a big. Uh, That's right, Trevor Brooking. We opened up a shop when yeah. I was eight years old with Trevor Brooking, and you know we we were we would go to all the home games, and yeah, it was part of our life. And when I went to private sports school, you get introduced to rugby. I actually got introduced to rugby a lot earlier from my best mate Chris Chris Tiddley, but yeah, and then sort of rugby sort of took over, and yeah, I absolutely love rugby. What did you love about it? Well, as an adult getting on the beers with the boys after a match. If <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I'm honest with you. <laughs> the training and stuff, I wasn't, wasn't really my bag. But, you know, we, we, we trained hard, we played hard and we partied harder, I think. But the camaraderie with rugby and rugby men are good men. They've got, you know, this, they've got great morals and good people. And it's, 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 it's not a better sport to place yourself around and um, for contacts, etc. these days is, you know, the age we're at now. So where did the... Um... You went to Loughborough, you yes. studied sports science at yeah, Loughborough? Yeah, PE sports science PE sports science. Yeah. Was, was there, was that with a, and I always think it's that very difficult question around, you know, when you're asked, I don't know, age 16, mm. there are certainly some people that will stand there and say, oh, I'm going to do this. Yeah. Some people are really clear. It yeah. happens at different ages for different people, but some people just don't know. Yeah. You know, sometimes you just find your way. Was, yeah. was there a plan with sports science? You know, my brother did sports science. He was always going to be a PE teacher. It was yeah. really clear about where that was going to take him, but- was there a plan? Was no, there, not no. a clue. Not a clue. I knew there was a teacher at school saying, you, you love your sport, you excel in sport, you need to go to Loughborough. I didn't have a clue where Loughborough was. Do you know what I mean? At age of 18, 17, like, where is Loughborough? What is that? But then you found out it was the best sports yeah. university in the country. It's got a great reputation. So went there, didn't have the grades to get in, uh, end up doing a degree, peer sports science. I, if I'm honest with you now and being really honest, half the subjects didn't have a clue what was going on. I just had that mindset. There was 12,000 people on campus. 
how can I make a business out of this? Which was going to be my next yeah. question. So you then come, I was going to come on to, you, yeah. you start setting up student nights as I yeah. understood it. What, tell me a bit about the story. What was the Well, the I, well story I remember it? it stems back further going into school. It's about, you know, there was 400 kids at school. How can I earn money out of 400 kids at school selling stuff that they want in a win-win, in a win-win scenario, which every win-win scenario in business seems to work. So I always try to find out what they wanted, whether whatever they wanted, and I would, I would get it on mass and then, so let's so going back to the university one. I saw that twelve thousand people on campus, and there was a local nightclub um, held a thousand people. And I went to the local nightclub and said, "You got a thousand people going in there, and you're charging two pounds. Why don't we make it three pounds? I keep a pound, you keep two pounds, and I'll be the face of it and front it and promote it harder." That's what we did, and we ended up getting two thousand people in there each week. Again, so they were remember, winning. They were, was... earning, they were earning more money on the bar. They were earning more money on the door. And I was winning as well. And this was in my final year at uni. So I thought, wow, I'm onto something here. This is, this is actually unbelievable. I was telling, I drive, I drive back to dad to put the, to put the money in the safe. And he was like, how on earth are you doing this? This is, this is 20, 20 odd years ago now, 20, yeah. 1999 this was. I ended up having two nightclubs every week in my final year at university. One in Wandsworth in London, student night, and one in Loughborough. And I'd drive down London, obviously promote it during the week, get teams of people promoting the week. We'd take the door money and drive back up to Loughborough on Wednesday night, take the money, door money there. And it was like, Jesus Christ, this is this is crazy. And then realised that no one in the UK was doing it. So when we finished the degree, the year later, we set up a brand called popyourcherry.com when websites were <laughs> first come on the scene. I actually used the Pasha logo yep. um, of the cherries, thinking I was going to get a, a lawyer's letters one day and... Luckily, never, never did. did. Yeah. <laughs> Thank God. Um, but we called it popyourcherry.com and we created a website. And obviously, again, there was no social media. It was all flyering, fly posting, et cetera. Um, and we built that company up. And, you know, we at peak, we had 12 student nights every week, you know, three on a Monday or four on a Monday, whatever it was. And that went on three on a Tuesday, three on a Wednesday, three on a Thursday. And then we'd drive back down to London and I wanted to see if this business model would work. Um, and luckily it did. Luckily, it did, and um, did that for did that for ten years. Fantastic. One of the lessons I learned, in fact, was very interesting. I got chatting to a couple of people the other day, and said, "Okay, you built it from two nightclubs each week, then you built it to six nightclubs each week, and then the following year you built it to ten, and the following year you built it to twelve. One lesson I look back and learn is going more doesn't mean more profit. So you look back now, and the lessons I learned was wonderful because you can stretch yourself too thin, but you need to push those boundaries to see. If it does create more with less headache, but obviously <laughs> looking back now as you as your older self is that the the more you create, the more headache you are gonna gonna have, mm. you know. And a lot of lessons learned back then, and a, a lot a lot of fun. Being, I bet. Being, are you a, are you a, in terms of that learning? Are you the, the kind of individual? Do you learn? You mentioned when um, when you set up uh, the Ball Sevens, you know the, the NFL. Uh, the US kind of research yes. that you were doing. Are, yeah. you a, are you a reader or you tend no. to be one of those people that you learn by experience? You'll oh. go in, you'll find out, you'll do, you'll you'll reflect. Oh, yeah. I, I, I'll read a page of something, I'll fall asleep. Right. Literally, I, I, reading is not my thing. I just I, I, let me, now I've got the internet, let me do my homework and I'll, I'll research for 24 hours a day if I have to because mm. I, like, I like knowing that I've covered every single angle. And every time I do a bit of research, I find something that adds, then you put it into a colander. For me, I call it a colander, you know, what you use to pour the pasta out of the water. I, put, I throw everything into a colander when I'm building a business. Everything. And see what comes out, drips out down the bottom. And then the five or six things that drip out, I create a new colander. Throw those six things in, see what drips out. And then 
you get to a point where you can take the colander away and then you feel like you've then got a business model. Mm. So you've done, you've done other things um, in in recent years as well as like brand creations, a clothing, sportswear company. Yes. Tell, tell me a bit about the, the story behind those. Yeah, again, uh, those we, again uh, 2008, we obviously, we launched Bournemouth Sevens, as you know. In 2010, we come up with the idea of creating an online business model. An online business model in the sportswear industry. Now, identified that there was, that, all our competitors were designing their kits and then the teams all around the UK, there's thousands of teams, rugby teams and netball teams, et cetera, and universities wanting kit at the start of the year, September. They all want kit. So I looked at that and thought, my God, what's the business model? I've been through that process of wanting stash and kit, what have you. And it takes three months turnaround to get it from China, to put it on, to make it in China, to put it on the water, to put it on a ship, ship it all the way back to the UK to then distribute it. I thought, it's got to be an easier way than this. So I'd again, had two years of doing homework, research and development, and I found a factory in Lithuania that we could do exactly the same as our competitors. Instead of taking three months, we'd take three weeks. And that business model broke the back of the teamwear industry. And this was Viper 10? Viper 10 was created. Viper 10 Sportswear was created. Um, it was a digital business model. And the reason I thought of it is compared to all our competitors, they had people on the road going to all the clubs and universities trying to sell their brand. Yeah. We did everything online. We created an amazing website. We created a 3D kit designer, which was like you saw on Nike ID, where you could create and design your own Nike trainers. We come up with the idea of creating an online kit designer where you can create your kits online. So you can have a team of you, 20 of you in a room, design your own kits, press a button, it comes to us. We can get it turned around and land it on your door in three weeks. Brilliant. Yeah. So that was that was a hell of a journey as well. What do you think you learned from that experience? Um, what did I learn from that experience? Everything can go digital. Everything, everything can be online. Everything can go through social media channels. Everything can be used via influencers, having them on board. Brand creation, creating something new and different and fresh again to disrupt the market, which we did. And knowing that one day that business could be sold. But I didn't have in my mind that I ever wanted to sell that business because you have to concentrate on the business and make it all the fundamentals work of the business and put all your processes and systems in place that you're protecting your business at every angle. Mm. And that's the key. And a lot of kids, these well, kids, a lot of people these days, the younger generation are going for that quick hit, the quick buck. And it's not about that. It's about creating a brand that has longevity. And if you create your brand that has longevity, it becomes more interesting for someone who wants to buy you. And someone bought us and we didn't want to sell it. We didn't, we didn't think about selling it. You know, someone phoned me on a Sunday night in 2018 saying, is that Roger Woodall? I said, yes, who's this? Da, da, da. And he said his name. He said, I've been watching Viper 10 for three years. I want to buy your brand. And I was, I said, I was actually hung over at the time. We had a party. <laughs> we had a party on Saturday night and it was on the Sunday. And I was just, just, it phoned me about nine o'clock at night and I was just chilling out and um, watching a bit of telly, relaxing. And he sort of caught, caught me off the cuff and I was like, where'd you get my number from? He said, I can't tell you, but I want to buy Viper 10. I thought it was one of my friends. I thought it was Chris taking the mickey. So I said, oh, fantastic. If, if you are the real deal, please send me an email tomorrow. Let me see your footer and your email address. And if you put some details in there 
and we'll carry on the conversation tomorrow, not thinking anything of it. And then next morning, nine o'clock, bang, email in front of me. So, and we didn't want to sell it because this was a nice business we got. We're creating something really cool. We've only been, we've only been uh, trading for six years. Anyway, roll on. He made a, uh, an offer we couldn't refuse, shook his hand. Eight months later with lawyers and solicitors and accountants all involved, the business was sold 100% with no earnouts, which was wonderful. Fantastic. Yeah. I think the thing that intrigues me about that is that you know, if you look at much of what we might read in terms of business literature mm. or, or business education would centre around this sense of, right, you've got to know your destination. What's nah, your plan? Three nah. years, five years, two, whatever, yeah. whatever it is. There's a destination and everything takes you on that journey to that point, oftentimes exit for the owners, whatever it may be. Yeah. So you look to cash in your chips. But from what you're saying, it's there's been other influential motivating factors that have, you know, there hasn't been a, right, this is about making a number. It's about creating things. It's about realizing uh, a vision about creating an environment, culture, experiences for people. It's, it's a different kind of yeah. it's message, really, I think, to what mm. much of what we might read or be led to believe. Yeah, I agree. Totally agree. Culture is the key. Mm. You know, if you can create a, a wonderful culture within your team, you know, it's not, it's not culture is, I can't express how important culture is, environment and how you, and how you want people to feel. And also creating a, a business model and a, or something that's completely unique, completely that's something wants and fresh to the market. Again, to disrupt the market. And there's lots of businesses out there that entrepreneurs can get an idea and think how they can make that idea better, but they have to disrupt the market, you know? Um, so who do you, who do you look, who do you admire, you know, from a, from a business perspective now, if you look at those those brands or businesses or indeed people that have offered that that disruption to which you refer, who do mm. you, who I, do you I'm, look to? I'm, I'm, I'm friends with Barry Hearn, sort of Matchroom Sports, and I really yeah. admire him, what he's achieved. He's kept it a private company for 40-odd years. You know, he, he, I know he's gone through super highs and super lows within that period, and he is the best and biggest sports promoter worldwide. And his son, Eddie good bloke who's now taken over the whole boxing and he's probably the biggest boxing promoter worldwide. Having Anthony, having Anthony Joshua in, in his stable and all the other wonderful boxes he's got and they're covering hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours in Sky Sports. Um, I really admire those guys. They're very straight talking. Um, they're very fair. They cut great deals. Um, they know their worth. They're very humble with it. I admire a lot of people really. There's no one I sort of look to and say, "Oh my God, I want to be like them." I'm, I'm me. I'm, you know, I'll do it. I've done it my way with no anyone holding my hand anywhere. I've just done it off the hoof. This is what feels right and what I must say. And when I speak to younger generation, really go with your gut. People forget your gut feeling. People go with the mind. But you really must go with your gut feeling. And if it's not feeling right, walk away. Has there ever been a time in your life where? instinct has told you to go that gut instinct to which you refer has told you to go one way and you've gone the other way and regretted it no no that's that gut feel is so strong so strong yeah so strong so 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 strong you know when you've created all these businesses we've created all these businesses over the years there's lots of business we've gone down a path to have a look at we haven't just gone oh we're, oh yeah well, all the student nights worked well and oh yeah the Bournemouth sevens worked well and viper 10 worked well and we solved that oh, well, you know i've probably looked at 19, 20 other businesses in depth, investing research and 
homework and finding out is this right? Is it right? And if it can't tick eight of the 10 boxes, walk away. If you're doing it when it ticks threes and fours and fives of the boxes, and is it actually going to, are you doing it for love? Or are you doing it to monetize it? Are you doing it for the wrong reasons? Because if you get stuck in that business, you are stuck. You could be unhappy for many years. And a, a big thing that, you know, I, I, I like to sort of, as an entrepreneur and sort of flying the flag for British entrepreneurs and, you know, and I look to the younger generation, it's really important that you find a job or you create a business that you really love because it's quite easy to get caught up in things and you are stuck in something you can't get out, out of because you're just about making it work. It's just about giving you the minimum salary. It's just about getting you over the line. There's going to be a time when you're going to have to get investors in and then your hands are tied. We've never had any investors whatsoever. I never intend to have any investors whatsoever. And if you can manage to do it yourself, I would highly recommend doing everything yourself and not have your hands tied by people telling you what to do. I think it's uh, clearly money is a is a factor, mm. um, undeniably. And business seems like a daft thing to say, but undeniably, it's a it's a big factor. But I've always maintained if you if you focus on all the things that you consider to be important to you and what you're trying to achieve and your people and your team around you, then the, you get all those things right. The money becomes a natural byproduct. Agree. If you just focus on the money, then I think there's there's an awful lot of heartache and pain that comes along the 100%. way. It, it, it's inevitable anyway. It comes anyway. But if you're only focused on the money, I think there's something a bit sad about that. 100%. If you focus on creating something special, again, I keep going back to disrupting the market. If you can focus on having the happiness of waking up every morning knowing you're going to work that's worth more than waiting gold yeah absolutely um so what, what is it that gets you out of bed in the morning because you've got a lot yeah you've got a lot of energy yeah you know, you, you, where does it come from what is it that gets you out of bed in the morning what is it that you're trying to achieve i'm on a different stage in my life at the moment and and then what i've been in the last 20 years um i've got a passion for creativity and I always have done. I love creating. I love creating new businesses. I love creating new businesses in the sports world. I love creating new businesses in a world that I think is the next big thing. And right now, I've probably, I'm probably at the most excited moment I've been for maybe eight years right now since launching the other two businesses and they're up and running and doing wonderfully well. And, and down to the team, you know, it's all down to the team. My team at HQ are, are unbelievable human beings and unbelievable grafters. They just get it. They've got the freedom to do what they want, just make it happen and make it work. And we can all have fun on the journey. But yeah, what gets me up in the morning is is my health and happiness and wife and little boy and mates and enjoying the good things in life. Because I kind of feel that I've crammed a lot in and sped business up by being like a dog with a slipper, I guess, for, for many years, you know. Um, where, where does that, that that excitement through this period to which you refer? I think um, it would be amiss of me not to at least mention the situation that we find. I don't, I don't want to use that term unprecedented. <laughs> don't unprecedented use that word. <laughs> times. Um, But the times through which we found ourselves in yeah. COVID-19, I thought I'd, I might have seen most kind of economic and, and human scenarios through the course of my working life. And, yeah. and this one's a bit different again. Yeah. I would imagine that for Bournemouth Sevens, that for example, there's there's, there's been some really tough decisions yeah. that you've you've had to make, uh, which I'm sure have taken their toll. Yeah. 
And yet here you are, we sit down in the, you know, with, with the news that sadly the festival had to be cancelled this year. You're going to revisit next year, clearly, and off you'll go, I'm sure, from strength to strength. But yeah, what, what for many might have been sat here feeling respectfully a little bit sorry for themselves, mm. or certainly having been through tough times, yet here you are saying, I'm really excited. Yeah. So where does all that, st- what, what's, where does that stem from? Where does Bru- it come from? Brilliant question. Brilliant question. The excitement really where I'm at today is that never waste a good crisis. And I've been here before in 2008 and I was there in 2001 we set up a business as well when the twin towers went through and there was a that was all going off so I kind of I feel like a bit of a seasoned pro of what's going to happen in the world right now in business and recession and I can see a I can see a huge I can see something huge happening you know I've been very lucky in the country that everyone's been furloughed and been protected but as soon as that furlough gets taken away there's going to be a lot of the unemployment's going to be extremely high and I guess the excitement really is that it's allowed me, COVID-19 is a horrible thing that's happened. Um, and obviously we won't wish it on anyone. And, um, but it creates opportunity. And with the festival, so if we roll back now, what month are we now? We're in June. June. Yeah. So I think it was February. The whole country was buzzing. Brexit, yeah, happy days. We've got a decision. We're all moving forward. And then March come along and we saw what's happening in uh, China with this thing called COVID-19. And then three weeks later, Boris is talking that we're going to be in a lockdown. So straight away, he was also said on that the peak of the pandemic is going to be on Bournemouth 7's weekend. He didn't use those words. No. <laughs> to the nation. I wish he did. It's about 50 million people watching or whatever it was. Um, but he, he used the word that pandemic was going to be at the highest peak at on our weekend. So it's literally like, shit, what are we going to do? What does this mean? What is what is pandemic? What does this mean? Is it going to go ahead? What's, you have to think on our feet, but you know, we're lucky that we're a very nimble company and we've got no shareholders and so no one to answer to. So we moved very quickly with police, council, licensing. Everyone had bought all the tickets because it was very close to being sold out uh, back in March, which was wonderful. And all the 400 teams traveling from different parts of the world and the UK to, who are coming down and looking forward to their end of season tour with us. So we had to act quickly. So we, and and quickly with the venue. So there's a lot of hoops to jump through and, and luckily everyone was on board for us moving it from the May bank holiday to the August bank holiday weekend, which gave us an extra hundred days. It gave, it certainly gave me a, a lifeline or a dangly carrot to say this could still go ahead. That brought a whole new emotion that I've never gone through because when you move a festival, you're then waiting on how many people saying, I don't want to move my ticket across, I want a refund. So that was a different emotion for the, for the, so all of a sudden we were seeing all these requests for refunds coming through every day onto info at boardmore7s.com. I was like, oh my God, this is new. I've never experienced this before. So that went on for about 14 days. And after 14 days, it just stopped. Everyone stopped asking for refunds. We added it all up and only 10% of people wanted a refund. That gave us a huge boost to say, wow, we've got serious love for this festival. You know, we created something really nice here and everyone loves the festival. They're genuinely gutted. We've had to move it, but they're going to stick with us. And then we moved it to the August and then, I don't know when it, when, it, when it was, I think it was maybe a couple of weeks ago, Boris again spoke and said, we're on further lockdown. Um, and we had to make a decision, you know, with the government and everything, everyone else talking to say, I think we're going to have to cancel. And that was, that was, that was weird emotion. I have to say, because forget the finances, because you know, you've got full-time staff to pay for the whole year. 
you know, I'm not on a salary, nor is my wife. We we wait till we do the festival and then we take a dividend after the festival on the success of it. So obviously we didn't get paid this year. Um, and But you've still got to pay all the staff and overheads and office costs and everything that goes with it. So we, we kind of took that on the chin and luckily furloughs helped a little bit. Um, but the biggest thing for me was the how you've built something up for so many years and how all of a sudden something can just change very quickly. And owning and running a festival is a very risky business. It's very rewarding, but it's very risky, as everyone knows. And it made me then think, I need to think of another business. And it put my back against the wall to think, right, you've got time now. The whole of your, the whole of the football season's been cancelled. The whole of rugby season's been cancelled. The whole of my calendar of booting out to Ibiza with the boys and going on family holidays, that, that, that's all cancelled. Everything was cancelled. It was like, wow, there's actually nothing to look forward to apart from being in our wonderful country. And luckily we've had wonderful sun and we've enjoyed nice things, um, simple things. So it made me think, I need to create a new business. And that's what we've done. I've looked at the online world, online learning world, coaching and training world. And we have got a course coming very soon, um, which is going to take people to the next level. It's going to help people who have been in a job, may have lost their job. It's going to help them, teach them to help to be entrepreneurs and look at opportunities that they can create their own, their own freedom and their own income and be in control of their own destiny. Are you at a point at which you can say where people could find that information? Have you not launched yet? Are you going to... It's, co it's, it's, co it's coming. It's right. coming soon, and it will be under Roger Woodall. Right. Um, and also the next, the other uh, course will be the next level course, and we're going to be putting it out there to the masses. And part of the course is about the events world and how you can get into the events world and into the festival world and learn about digital media and learn about Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn and Twitter and learn about entrepreneurialism and leadership and your mindset, all the things they don't teach you at school and they don't teach you at uni. They don't teach you business. They don't teach you how to sell. They don't teach you how to market yourself. They don't teach you, you know, this is a whole new story, but, I'm, I, you know, they don't teach you much at school apart from subjects that don't really matter in later life, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So we feel that we're going to bring something really special and really interactive and fun and dynamic and cutting edge that isn't out there on the marketplace at the moment. So, so fingers crossed, we can disrupt the market again and bring something of value that is a win-win situation for us and and the people who buy into buy into our courses. So what what is the well, I guess two questions, but I'll I'll break them down. What is the first and foremost? What does the future look like for Bubble Sevens, or indeed the 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 concept, the music and 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 sports festival concept that you've created so successfully? What does the f future look like for 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 that entity first and foremost? Mm. I think, Bob, that's a very good question, again, because it's all the unknown. What we do know is we've got amazing following and a lot of love, and we've built that up. And it's a great atmosphere. It's I mean, a great it's atmosphere. It's difficult to capture that it's in the context explain, of conversation, yeah. but it is, it, is a, it is a special atmosphere. It's a special atmosphere with a really special vibe, and I would I would put my house on it. That, In fact, I wouldn't put my house on it. You've done, <laughs> done that once. <laughs> I'd put my house in it that I would genuinely say you will not find a better festival vibe than any festival around the UK. Because it's like-minded people, you know, it's it's like-minded sports, party, fun people come in there to drink, love and drink f and dance around in fancy dress and listen to different genres of music and, and really buy into the weekend. But 
What we found for 2021 is that so many people now it's been cancelled have passed their ticket on to next year, which again, we have been blown away. You know, only 10%, only 10% of people want their money back because next year is next year and it's way too far away for them to think about. But 90% of people have said, pass my ticket to next year. So it's going to create lots of buzz. There's not going to be many tickets left for people who want to buy next year. Um, but again, we don't know. We don't know what's going to happen. Do you see a do you see a, an opportunity of you know I feel you look at sevens you know the Hong Kong sevens or Dubai sevens or whatever do you see a do you see the equivalent of the the Bournemouth sevens festival music and sport in Dubai in in uh, China in one the US the, one wherever, of, <laughs> in Spain wherever I get offers in fact to yeah. to franchise it out and, yeah uh, and I could franchise it out and charge X I don't want to do it right I don't want to do it. I haven't got I haven't got the we've got a business model that no one knows yeah I quite like that. Yeah, I quite like that, and let's just concentrate on what we do here. I don't need to go out and do a Miami Sevens or a Dubai Sevens or something else with a sport and music festival. And there's people offering big money to for me to go out there and 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 teach them what to do and what have you. But I kind of just love being down here and living down here and enjoying a nice, calmer life and concentrate on our on our baby. And that is the Bournemouth Sevens. I think it, because it taps into the very essence of human nature doesn't it it's you know there's there's the the adrenaline element to it and the endorphins that get released from playing sport yeah. and all that's associated with socializing with big groups of people having a great time yeah. it's just it's just a feel-good event yeah you know yeah. drinking dancing uh, doesn't matter about alcohol you're just having a good time yeah. you know it's just it's everything every element to it is about the very cele celebrating really in my view the very yeah. best of of what we are as human beings Absolutely. and 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 actually therefore from my you know if i put that kind of entrepreneurial thought process to it, I think I could pick that up and drop that into yeah. any one of a number of other. Interesting that yeah. that's, you know, that's, and I respect that fully. Yeah. So that's not, that's not yeah. what you want to do. No, I don't want to do that. And especially in the UK, because there is a, there is a window you can put on festivals. We're the first festival of the season. Yeah. Uh, May bank, bank holiday. May bank holiday, the yeah. last bank holiday. If I was to go and do a Cardiff Sevens, if I was to go and do a London Sevens, if I was going to do a Leicester Sevens, wherever it may be, I could just be robbing Peter to pay Paul. Yeah. You know, I've got a 12 week period. And if I did it even six weeks apart, the people would go, oh, oh, the owner Roger Woodall's doing Cardiff Sevens. Let's check out Cardiff this year. He's going to put on a great show, no doubt. Let's check out Cardiff. We'll leave Bournemouth to the following year. I'll just be diluting what I've got. And I don't want to dilute what we've got because we've got something special. It's about nurturing, about protecting what we've got at every angle. So, what, what does the future look like for Roger Woodall? It's bringing, I've never really put myself out there apart from LinkedIn. I keep myself very private. Um, and I'm going to start putting myself out there, I think, um, and see if I can help students, students who have finished uni, students who are thinking of going to uni, and in my eyes, spending £27,000 on a three-year course. I believe I could teach them what they've learned on a three-year course in three months on one of our courses, genuinely, helping people who have got a degree, in something and aren't happy in a job they currently are sitting in because it's nothing to do with their passion. How I can help those guys and see how we can get them out of that and get their CVs and in, under the noses of the right people in the UK. Um, and helping people with a career change into something they want to do and just be, just be there on a one-to-one -one or one-to-group or one-to-many, however, or whatever I've got to do, whether I set up my own podcast, which we're looking to do at the moment, um, got a big following on LinkedIn. 
So I answer all questions and people who send me direct messages. I like to interact with people. And and since I found this thing called Zoom, I've now <laughs> set up Zoom calls with people. And I've been doing all this, been doing all this for years, just helping people and advising and, and people coming into the office and me giving an hour of my time. And I actually really enjoy it. Um, and I think the next chapter of my life of me evolving in as a businessman and evolving where I'm going in my next chapter, next chapter is something I'm really, really excited about. I've got to say, I've got this passion of helping people and, and it might just be one thing I say that makes them go, triggers them because you got to remember that schools train people's mindsets in a set way. The older generation trained the children's minds in a set way. And the mindset is powerful and the mind is powerful and the, the mindset of you must leave school and you must go to university and you must go and get a job and you must stay in that job for 30 years until you get your pension. That's far from my world. I, I think it's far from the world now. I think if you look at the way that education was originally established, we were in a, a time of, of frankly, industrial revolution. Yeah. Where that, and that was about getting groups of people to stand in a line and take instruction yeah. for 12 hours yeah. and then go home and not really question that instruction. Mm. Um, whereas now, you know, that's a a style of working and a mindset that frankly is in my view, no longer fit for purpose. Yeah, you know, if you're not asking questions, if you're not challenging, if you're not being disruptive in yeah. a healthy way, if you're not, um, if you're not pushing, poking, prov- you know, provoking, testing, yeah. then you're not moving forward. Absolutely. And All I your s- answers are on the internet. Yeah. Your answers are on the internet. Everything that I've learned in my life, I found in the last, I've learned more of YouTube in the last five years than I've done in 30 years. I think, I think the, the interesting thing with that, and I, and I totally agree with you, I think the, the interesting thing is, though, that that the, the instinct that you have naturally to question mm. will, I would imagine, mean that when you do read something on the internet, you'll then, well, is that right? Is that yeah. accurate? Let me dig a bit further and find out if I'm, if is what I'm being told, is that correct? Yeah. Do I need to take that to it? And I think that that's the, that's the skill set we need to encourage in yeah. people is to be naturally be inquisitive yeah. ask questions ask it's like i think you you mentioned to me when when we spoke uh your lad's five six something six, like that. Yeah. i remember but my lad's 16 now but i remember when he was five six why 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 was he's forever asking mm. why and mm. you see that's that's the the right question mm. to be asked those questions yeah. and i think that you know unless we can get from an educational perspective that kind of natural questioning style ingrained mm. in people then you know what future the entrepreneur is. So it, there is that we do need to kind of bridge that education and, and earning a living. Uh, There's a massive gap. There, the there is a massive, massive gap. gap. And you, you, you're right. It may mm. well be tapping into something again that really is Disrupting. the world is crying out for. Absolutely. Well, hopefully we're going to disrupt, disrupt the market and bring something that's a win-win again. Yeah. Bring something that we can teach people who, you know, there's more entrepreneur. When I first started off, the word entrepreneur wasn't cool. It wasn't a cool word. The last five, six, seven, eight years, everyone wants to be an entrepreneur. You know, everyone wants to live the freedom, the lifestyle, and uh, and and have money and do business wherever you are and whatever you. You know, I've never used a computer. I, think- I do my whole life. My whole life and my whole business has been off a mobile phone. Yeah. People think I must be banging out emails every day. I can't stand emails. I can't stand sitting in front of a computer. I can't stand being in an office. I don't like it. I work from home. I've got wonderful, nice offices and great team. I work from home on the end of the phone. I can be anywhere. And I and it's been interesting, in fact, because I was chatting to a, a girlfriend of mine and she she was saying, not an actual girlfriend, I've got a wife, but a girlfriend <laughs> of mine, who, uh, and she was saying, 
have you sped business up? I, for me, I reckon I've sped business up by five years by just using WhatsApp. I run my whole business off WhatsApp. You ask any of the staff, my whole business done off WhatsApp. Well, you, you're a prime example. Mm. We had this. We had our initial introduction via WhatsApp, didn't we? I think yeah. LinkedIn message in the LinkedIn, first instance, and then WhatsApp. I gave you my mobile. I said, yeah. "WhatsApp me." Yeah, I don't care who's got my mobile. It's not a problem having my mobile number because we're open up conversations. And I know when you've read it with a double click. You know when I've read it with a double blue tick. Away we go. Deal done. We've cracked on. We've moved on. This is why we're here so quickly. After you wanted to do a, a, a podcast, and it's it's a delight to be here. And actually, it's a delight to hear these questions because I've never been asked these questions because I've Thank never, you. I've never. Again, this is the start of my new journey. Well, I think I think your, your point around speed and, and that sort of entrepreneurial journey and everyone wants to be an entrepreneur these days because we, we, we read a lot. I think the the bit that the bit that gets missed for me is that the you know if you look at the success of the rugby sevens as an example and what we've talked about here today, we're twelve years on. You know, this was not a, a admittedly you you know to your point you made a thousand pound profit on that first on the on the first sevens on the first festival, but. You know, a lot of sleep, hell of a lot of sleepless nights, a lot of heartache, huge investment um, financially, a huge commitment and risk financially. Um, I think we, you know, we hear a lot about the overnight success. Mm. And I think the bit that um, we live in a world now where we have an expectation of an immediacy of response and yeah. result. And I think the bit that needs, that people do need to understand is that for, you know, for, for the, if you like, is that there is no, there is no magic bullet. There is no, no secret sauce. There is no click and it happens actually an awful lot of it is blood sweat tears bloody hard work peaks and troughs graphs yeah. you know it's and that's the bit that i think because of the the sort of social media where social media is not misleading but it presents a world of right here's, a, here's the next big thing here's it the is, next big it, success it, it, it's i media. think social media is misleading yeah i reckon social media is i'm not saying all social media no. is, is but social media as a whole is fake yeah we create this kind of my perfect life scenario, don't you? It's in many my a perfect case. life. And yeah. I know many of people who are fronting things, driving around with the photos and the Ferrari. It's all on tick. Yeah. It's all on tick. And now with everything come crashing down, you won't be seeing those people driving around on yeah. tick, Ferrari and, and everything, credit cards here, there and everywhere. People have got to get to real. And in but, business, get real because it's not about the front of owning this and having this and having. If you can't afford, I was growing grow up, if you can't afford it, you don't buy it. I think that that's also part of the, you know, we, we are in a credit driven world. There yep. is no, right. You, 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 you uh, work X amount of time to save up that bit of money to buy it. And if it's still too expensive, you've got to work a bit more before you can buy it. You can mm. just have it now. Mm. I think that they're in, they're in lies of, you know, a structurally a, a, a change that would need to be made. But I think also, you know, you're a great example of frankly, 20 years of longer, mm. you know, if you go back to your, you know, selling Panini stickers again in yeah. the school playground, 30 years of, of frankly, bloody hard work, mm. graft, um, taking a risk, highs and lows. And that that's life. Mm. You know, for everybody, that's life. Life has peaks and troughs, ups and downs. And I think that's the also a message I would always wish to try and get across to anyone thinking of starting a business mm. is, yeah, the highs are really really high, but it is an emotional roller coaster. Yeah. And the yeah. lows are bloody low. Yeah. And the, the virtues of having a fleur alongside you yeah. with whom you can share that kind of journey and you can support each other, having a great partner, whether that's a business partner, whether that's yeah. a life partner, all of these sorts of things are also wrapped up in what, in that entrepreneurial journey. Yeah. And I think these are the bits that get missed out. All we do is we end up reading that Facebook just paid a billion quid for 10 yeah. guys in a room business called Instagram. And that's, yeah. yeah. And all of a sudden everyone can be a billionaire. Yeah. That we don't read of those four out of five businesses that don't make Absolutely. it past their fifth year or whatever it might be. Absolutely. So 100% that's, yeah. What what advice would you have if without wishing to to break into your new business model yeah. in two? Yeah, but is there a kind of 
that one piece of advice from your perspective that you would share with any aspiring entrepreneur today? And if so, what might it be? Uh, sharing what, sorry? Just that, is there a, a, a bit of advice you'd offer or uh, pearls of wisdom? Okay, I, I think if you're an entrepreneur, I would look to get a mentor because I mentor a few people and I truly believe that we can speed business up by three to four years. I truly believe we can cut out all the mistakes you're about to make that I've been through. I've made the mistakes. I've learned the hard way. I'm now going to tell you and teach you what not to do and what to do. And do you think it's interesting you should, because that's something you, you didn't, as I understood no. it from what you've described today, you, there wasn't a mentor for no. you necessarily. No. There wasn't that for you. Do you think you could have accelerated your journey had you had had that mentor in place? I would have thought so. I would have thought so. Yeah, I would have thought so. If there was someone there holding your hand going, whoa, whoa, don't do that. Whoa, whoa, do that. I think you should do this. I just, I just learned off the hoof everything, off the cuff. Everything we did was off the cuff. Everything. But you learn very quickly because I was dogged. I was, a, like I said, a dog with a slipper. And I, was, I wasn't going to – it was – I had the fear of failure. That's exactly what it was because I wasn't an academic. I was a sports person. But in my mind, it was – I wanted to be successful in, in my own right. I wanted to be successful in business. Um, I took rugby as far as I could take it. And then I was seeing all my pals around me playing for England. And it was amazing to see them playing for England as we were growing up in the, in the 21, 23, 25, 28, 30, and then, then becoming England captain or whatever it may be. In my own right, I wanted to be the pioneer as the, as the businessman, I guess, and uh, in really cool businesses and quirky businesses that can relate to all of us type of people. You know, I'm not sitting there and, you know, I don't wear suits and ties and shirts and it's, it's just real. And I guess the, I guess one of the tips I would be is if you could find a mentor, 100%, they could save you time, save you money, save you heartache, save you energy. My other big one is people always looking about earning money. See how you can cut your costs. And one, another thing, I've gone for ages with this, in fact, <laughs> Dave asked that question, is don't grow too quickly. Do not grow too quickly. The amount of friends I have who grow too quickly have all gone bust. Grow slowly get all your soldiers in a row, build up your systems in place. And when it's ready, employ someone. Don't go and employ people. The biggest overheads and biggest headache as a business owner and entrepreneur are staff and office costs. Keep it really low and lean. Keep your business lean as you possibly can for as long as you possibly can. The, the, the old adage, it's a marathon, not a sprint. 100%. Um, I think it's true. It's almost though that you're going to, having the knowledge that you're going to run that marathon at sprint speed. <laughs> yeah. It's probably, you know, you've got to be able to run top, top pelt for 26.2 miles, whatever yeah. it is. That, that is a, a real message. I think that people need to understand. Yeah. Roger, this has been brilliant. I've really enjoyed the opportunity to speak with you. Um, you've been really frank, really insightful. Uh, I think, uh, I'm a huge fan of the rugby sevens of the festival you've created. Um, it's a great experience for anyone that hasn't been, I'd, uh, I'd certainly be the first to hold up my hand and say, you'll have a great yeah. time. Um, and I'm now seeing, uh, you know, father of two teenagers, I'm now seeing them take on the mantle and, uh, having a great time Good. themselves attending. Them. So, uh, I think it's, um, you know, it's been great to meet with you. Really enjoyed this conversation this morning and, uh, really appreciate your time. All the very best to the future. Look, look forward to watching the new businesses fly. Yeah. Lovely. I've uh, just a quick one. I've thoroughly enjoyed this. This is very new to me. There's a lot of information coming out of my head that <clears throat> I've never spoken to people about. So this has been really refreshing and, uh, it's going to play a big part on uh, the next chapter of my life and where I'm evolving. And hopefully I can add a lot of value to the people who come on board. Fantastic. Thank you. Lovely. Good man. Cheers. Thanks, Cheers. Roger. Thank you.
Hi, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for listening to today's Astrology podcast. I really appreciate your uh, audience and ears. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, then uh, why not hop onto iTunes and give us a review? I'd really appreciate anything that you might have to say. Any feedback always gratefully received and uh, look forward to hosting you next time. See you soon. Just a reminder, today's podcast is brought to you by Progresso Talent Partners. Visit www.progressotalent.com today for more information.